Hey, anybody in here ever have any suffering? Anybody ever have any problems in their life, any struggles in your life? Well, today we're going to be talking about responding to suffering the Jesus way. How did Jesus do it? He's the one that we want to emulate. He's the one that we want to be like. So if you would, stand for reading of the Word of God. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, responding to suffering the Jesus way. Servants, be submissive to your master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, when you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Peter is strength and comfort and suffering. Strength and comfort and suffering. We need to have strength and comfort while we're going through this walk called Earth time. Earth time. Now, last week, we talked about believers and our responsibility to the government. Now, God has established government. We have really focused on that last time. And, and in verse 13 and 14, believers must submit to governmental authority. It's not an option. It's an obligation that we have as Christians to submit to the governmental authority. Now, remember, Jesus submitted to governmental authority. Now, the governmental authorities are not always really nice guys because, remember, at the time of Peter, Nero was in charge, and he ended up killing Peter and Paul and many other Christians, hundreds and thousands of Christians. At the time of Jesus, an emperor, a Caesar, was in charge. He wasn't a very nice guy. Governmental leaders can be problematic. Prime ministers can be problematic, and even our presidents can be problematic. And remember, Jesus submitted to authority, and Jesus paid his taxes. Jesus paid his taxes, and Peter and Paul also submitted, and so must we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to governmental authorities. Now, our duty, our duty to the government is several, many, many folded. We are to obey and pray for civil authority. So if you're not praying for your president, start to pray for him. Number one, that he gets saved. That's the first thing that he needs to do, or in his office, in his cabinet, and Supreme Court justices and governors and the whole ballywick needs Jesus Christ. Uh, the support to government by paying taxes. Believers, that's a believer's duty. It's a believer's duty to be an exemplary citizen, to be an exemplary citizen, and to submit to government unless, what was the qualifier, unless the government tells you to do something that is contrary to God, to the Word of God. In, in that case, believers must obey God and not men, and we see that all through Scripture, particularly in the, in the book of Acts. But believers must be discerning because you are living in a time of more and more deception. So you must be discerning at what is truth and what is not truth. Measure everything by what God has said in his word. Measure everything. Have eyes to see and ears to hear the things of the Spirit. Remember, deception is abounding. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Why is this such a big deal? Because I believe we're living in the epoch of time when we will see potentially see the master deceiver come on the scene. There are some people believe that we will see the Antichrist and others that we won't see the Antichrist. However you look at that, we should be able to identify by what this person is doing before he even comes to power that this probably could be, this could very well be that person. So we want to have eyes to see the deception that's going on around us. Now, this person that will come on the scene will be a governmental ruler that's going to change everything. He will mesmerize the world. He will usher in global peace, at least for a time. Environment will be taken care of. War will be taken care of. The economy will be taken care of. And he will even solve the unsolvable problem of peace in the Middle East. He will allow the temple to be rebuilt and temple worship to be reestablished in Jerusalem. He's going to be a mastermind. He's going to be very charismatic, and people are going to fall all over this guy. He is someone that's coming on the scene, and we are in the prelude to that. Do not be deceived by what's going on around you. Globalism is playing into this. Globalism is playing into this. 
You must remember that. For three and a half years, he's going to solve crisis after crisis until at the, la- at the, at the three and a half year point, he's going to set up an idol of himself in the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. And this is called the abomination of desolation. And from that point on, he exerts his power and his authority to oppress and oppress and oppress. And God says enough, and he pours out his judgment. During the tribulation period, the whole thing is going on, but he really ramps it up with the trumpet and bowl judgments. People will be allied with him. He demands allegiance. And if you do not unite with him, if you do not follow him, you will die. If you will turn just very briefly to Revelation chapter 13, you'll see a little bit about this guy. And it says in verse 11, you're going to be introduced to someone called the false prophet. He's going to be the second beast. He only has two horns. The real beast has ten horns, which shows power and authority. This one has two horns, but he is like the first beast. In verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He's from the demonic realm. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. He is going to be the counterfeit Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit directs all worship towards Jesus. This false prophet will direct all worship towards the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. Antichrist is going to experience a deadly head wound. He's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. What he's going to do is going to He's going to mimic the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Antichrist is a, is a picture of Jesus in the demonic realm, and he's trying to mimic everything that Jesus does, including a resurrection. Now, when that happens, verse 13, this, this false prophet performs great signs so that it even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Now, notice the word deceives. That's the key word. Humans are set up for deception. Deception. He deceives those who dwell on earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. And he tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is going to be a massive miracle. This image is going to actually speak. And people are going to be mesmerized, and there's going to be an insistence that people bow to this image, worship this image. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now catch what his number is. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, it is six. Six, six. And we've heard this through the entire time of our life. Six, six, six. And the demonic uh, relationship that that number has to the demonic realm. Now, hear this. Those who take the mark of the beast will be condemned. There are people in Christendom that are saying that's not so. I can tell you by the authority of the word of God that it is so. If you just look at chapter 14, verse 9, you will read these words. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. This sounds like bad news if you take the mark of the beast. This is hell. This is the lake of fire. This is separation from God. Who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name will incur this punishment. There's no question from Scripture that that's going to happen. This person is getting ready to come on the scene, the Antichrist. Globalism, like I said, is a prelude to this. Remember, we're in an age of deception. Be ready. Have eyes to see and ears to hear the things of the Spirit. Now, Jesus is going to come back. Antichrist's reign will be, his most powerful reign will be the last three and a half years when he is insisting that the whole world worship him. At the very end of that time, Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, and he defeats the Antichrist, and he establishes his kingdom on earth. And the final rebellion of Satan will be put down. The believer's hope 
is in a future kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ will be leading. And we said last time that this kingdom was mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. And he will establish an eternal government. There will be no more Antichrist. There will be no more Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. There will be no more rulers that come on the scene because King Jesus will rule forever and ever. And if there's ever a time to say amen, that would be a time to say amen because the king is coming. The king is coming. Now, this week, we're going to focus on this, responding to suffering the Jesus way. It's not going to get easier for Christians here, folks. Now, Peter is writing at the time of Nero persecution. And we have lived in a time of very, very tranquility within America. And we have had the freedom to worship God as we please. But suffering and persecution, as this thing winds down, and deteriorates, it's going to become harder for the Christians. It's going to become harder for the Christians. So responding to suffering the Jesus way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word. Help us to hear from you today. Teach us the truths that we need to hear to survive on this side. Help us to be overcomers, not victims of what is happening around us. May we have an uplifted spirit because we are on the winning side that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we walk with your strength in this culture. Thank you, Lord, for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as it starts out here, it says submission to masters, and it's talking about slaves and masters and that sort of thing. I want to give you some clarification on this from William Barclay. William Barclay says this, At the time of the Roman Empire, there were as many as 60 million slaves. Now, that's more slaves than the people in Rome, for sure, or, or and much of what Rome citizens of Rome occupied. In the New Testament times, these slaves were predominant. They were all over the place. By no means were the slaves only to do menial tasks. Some were doctors. Some were teachers. Some were musicians, actors, secretaries, stewards. Some, were, some of them had high levels of authority, but yet they were always slaves. Hear what he says about this. The work of Rome was done by slaves. The Roman attitude was this. There was no point in being master of the world and doing one's own work. Let the slaves do that, and the citizens, hear this, live in pampered idleness. Pampered idleness. I want you to focus on that word, pampered idleness. I'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Slaves were not allowed to marry. They could cohabitate. They could have children, but the children were the, were the property of the master. They were the property of the master. It is wrong to think that, that a lot of slaves were, they were unhappy, that was wretched conditions. Many of them were happy. Many of them had, had good situations. But it was always the plight of the slave, the following. Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family, but one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person, but a thing. Isn't that something? They had no legal rights. Aristotle writes this. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate object. The only difference between a slave and a beast or a farmyard cart was that a slave happened to be able to speak. That's how Rome viewed their slaves. Isn't that something? Peter Christosulus says this, Whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly or unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly or unknowingly, is justice and law. It doesn't matter what the master did to the slave. In regard to slave and master's will, even his master's whim was only the law. Whatever the master wanted, the slave had to take it. The slave, and this is the world that Peter was immersed in. This is where Peter lived. Quite different than the culture that we live in here today. Very different. Very different. Now, in verse 18 through 21, responding to suffering the Jesus way, the Jesus way is submission in suffering. You watch this. This is an interesting point. There's not a rebellion with the slaves. There is submission, particularly with the Christians. There was submission to their, to their masters. Verse 18 through 21, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. 
For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Oh, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Follow the way of the master. That is what we are told to do. Like Rome, suffering is not a word for Western Christians. The Romans wanted it easy, and I'll tell you, Western Christianity generally wants it easy. The rest of the world, again, it's not so easy to be a Christian. You give up everything to be a Christian in most of the world, but not here. Here, it's all about me. Pampering is in. Your best life now is what is promoted. Let someone else do all the work. That's in. If the truth truth be told, living like Rome in pampered idleness sounds pretty good to most Americans. Pampered idleness. Now, I will ask you, what group of people can you identify that likes to live in pampered idleness? And I will submit to you that group is the retirees in America. The retirees in America, where everything is about them. Pamper me, self-indulgence, I've put my time in, now I deserve. You know, retirement is a, is a relatively new thing. This is, something, this is an American concept or a Western concept. Uh, you retire in France at a very early age in your 50s. And then you try to pamper yourself in idleness and, and self-indulgence for the next 30, 40 years. And they wonder why their, their economy is collapsing. This is the reality of the world of, of Peter. Pampered idleness sounds pretty good to most Americans. The reality is this. Peter's world in Rome, slaves had no rights. They had no voice. Peter's word to Christians then and now, Peter's word to Christians then and now is this. Whether your master is good or bad, whether it's fair or unfair. Now, how often do we say that's not fair? Well, you might as well get used to that because by kindergarten, you know that life is not fair. When they take your truck or they take your doll or they take whatever whatever other little kid is trying to take from you, it's not fair. That's the first thing that comes out of our mouths. Well, it isn't fair. Life is not fair. Life is not fair. We're living in, in a world where unfairness is the way. So whether your master is good or bad, you are to take it patiently. Take it patiently. That word patiently is hupomeno, and it means to bear the load with faith and patience. To bear the load with faith and patience. Folks, this is the Jesus way. And I'll give you examples from this. I'll, I'll, I'll show you this in just a minute. Now, why are we to bear, bear cruel treatment patiently? Why are we to do that? Well, verse 19 tells us this. Because of conscience towards God because of our conscience towards God. Now, what is conscience? What is our conscience? Our conscience is to know intuitively right or wrong. Every human has a conscience. We are all born with a conscience, okay? Every time a person sins or rebels against God, they know it. They do it with knowledge. The word means con, C-O-N means with. Shunts means knowledge, with knowledge. We are doing it with knowledge. How do I know that? Because every human has what on their heart? The law of God has been imprinted on the heart of mankind, so everyone knows right and wrong. Everyone knows what is right and wrong. Now, thinking about your conscience, I've written down here, at least for this lesson, four conditions of the conscience. Four conditions of the conscience. Number one, you can have a good conscience. A good conscience. That's in 1 Timothy 1.19. A good conscience is sensitive to God. A good conscience comes from spending time with God. Spending time in God's Word, spending time with God's people, all the things that we know to do to cultivate a relationship with God. A good conscience is sensitive to God. It hears God. It knows how to navigate through life God's way. And then there's a, a weak or a struggling conscience. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. Uh, the weak conscience is one that is easily temptable, easily temptable. It is one that is a result of people that are Christians but they have a cursory relationship with God. 
Maybe they're a Sunday morning Christian. They come for their half hour or their 45-minute talk, and they leave as fast as they can, and whatever they've heard here, they just leave it behind. I've done my time, and I'm going out, and I'm living my life the way that I usually live it. That is a conscience that is a weak, struggling conscience. And then it progresses downward to a soiled conscience. We see that in Titus 1.15, and that means it's defiled by sin. It cannot discern right and wrong. This would be the unsafe person. And then it, de- then it deteriorates to this point, the seared conscience. The seared conscience. In 1 Timothy 4.2, 4, to render insensitive. It does no longer work. It is, it is the conscience, it is the person that we hear God saying that he gives them over in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 31. Three times he says he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. This is a seared conscience, no longer, no longer able to respond. We do have a conscience. Now the question is, why do we have to deal with harshness patiently? Because of our conscience towards God. Because we know intuitively by what he has taught us, the right thing to do is to bear the load because we represent him in the culture. We are representing him in the culture. This is not easy. This is not easy. The, the easy thing is to fight back. The easy thing is to use our words or our actions to fight back. Jesus is our example of unjust suffering. Jesus gives us a heads up on how to do this and what to expect. What to expect as Christ followers in this culture. He, he tells us this. In John 15, verse 18 through 20. And believe me, this is not popular, but this is the truth. And you won't hear this very many places in Christendom. I can tell you that. He says this, If the world hates you, now that if is a first-class condition, meaning if and it is so, or you could use the word since, since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Isn't that something? If you're in this world system, the world just loves you. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, is Jesus mincing words here? Is he, is he diminishing anything? Is he being kind of soft on this? No way. He's telling us the truth. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, if and is so, and is so, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, because of what Jesus has endured for us, we are to follow his example. This is the Jesus way. This is the Jesus way. No matter your situation, slave or free, just or unjust, we are to respond to life's challenges like Jesus. We are to respond to life challenges like Jesus. It's not always easy. As a matter of fact, most of the time it won't be easy. Life's unfairness, like Jesus, we are to follow in his steps. Verse 21 makes this very clear. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Do it his way. Now, let's do a little application here. Let's apply this for just a second. Now, facing your world the Jesus way, it's very different than what you've been taught. It's very different than what we see modeled in America. Somebody does something to you, you do something back to them. Somebody pokes you once, you poke them twice. That is not the Jesus way. That is your flesh way. So, mistreatment by employers or other people does happen. Now, let me say that again. Mistreatment by your boss, by your employer, by other people in the culture, does happen. Are we in agreement with that? Is that a common thing? That would be a common thing. Yes, it does. There is always the temptation to to despise or disrespect your master or other people, your employer or your boss. Now, some companies, some bosses are great and wonderful and that sort of thing. And if you're working in that situation, hip, hip, hooray for you. But most of the time, it's not that way. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you know that you deserved an attaboy, or you deserved a pay raise, or you deserved something that you did not get, a job well done. Many times, life is not fair. Sometimes others will be promoted when you deserve to be promoted. And I ask you this question. 
When someone else gets the accolades and you don't, they get the promotion and you don't, how's your attitude? I can tell you, when that happens to me, immediately my little Doberman thing goes up. I want to attack like the Doberman. But I am obligated to walk in his steps. So I can't act the way that I want to act, okay? Listen, it's important. A Christian worker is subject to his or her employer or employee, whether good or bad, fair or unfair. Why? In order to please God, our conscience towards God, in order to please God. This is the Jesus way. This is not the flesh way. This is not the American way, where this has to be fair. If it's not fair, I'm going to have my rights. Listen to this one. Remember, your calling is to reflect Christ wherever he places you. That is our calling, to reflect Christ wherever. That's the highest calling we have as humans on earth. It isn't our doctor this, or lawyer that, or I'm a teacher, and I'm a master plumber. I'm, no, I'm a, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I represent him no matter where I go, no matter what my title is. That's the priority of my life. Our witness to the world is to bear the load patiently, particularly when it's unfair, particularly when it's unfair. There's always going to be unfairness in the workplace. There's always going to be unfairness in the schools. There's always going to be unfairness on the team. There's always going to be unfairness wherever you go. We are to bear the load patiently. There is no greater witness to a fallen world. Hear this. There is no greater witness to a fallen world as a Christ follower than a Christian enduring hardship that is unfair. Now, people know when you've been treated unfair. If you're in the workplace and those co-workers are with you and they see someone else get the pay raise or the position that you should have gotten because you've been there like 10,000 years and you've done the job 50 times better than that dude, and they've got the, they got the promotion, they know. And by way you act will, will reflect the Lord Jesus Christ to that whole environment, to that whole environment. Verse 20, this is commendable before God that I deal with hardship patiently. And I might add again, this is a Holy Spirit thing. This is not normal behavior. This is a Holy Spirit thing. You can't do this in the natural. In the natural, again, you want, we want retribution. The principle is this. Now hear this. You don't get anything else out of this. Our witness is more important than our egos. Our witness is more important than our egos. We must remember that. Must remember this. A question for every one of us is this, for all of us, this question. Ask yourself this. How do those in my workplace view me? How does my boss view me? How does the people in my school view me? How do the people on my team view me? How do they view me? Am I a fountain or am I a drain? Am I pouring into those people? Am I helping in that work situation? Am I helping in that school situation? Or am I sucking the life out of everyone that's around me? Ask yourself that question. How do you talk about your boss or your company or, or other people? What am I posting on Facebook, social media, where I'm pouring my guts out? I hate this place. And your employers just, you hate this place. Oh, okay. You, you think you're going to get a promotion? You hate the, oh, Yeah. Be careful. Am I murmuring? Am I complaining? How does my face look? Am I going around... <laughs> not fair. Or am I reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ? And again, it's not a natural thing. The natural thing is to have the throne. Okay? The supernatural thing is, is, is to take it in stride. It's not like it's hilariously great that somebody else got the pay raise or the position. But we want to take it in stride. We want to be a fountain, not a drain in that environment that God has placed us in. So, how does my workplace view me? The answer that you have to this question, the answer will tell you if you are commendable before God. Colossians 3.17 are our marching orders. And whatever you do, now what is whatever? It's whatever, isn't it? It's whatever. Whatever you do in word or deed, that's say or do, word or deed, whatever you say or do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is how we are to respond. That is how we respond. Jesus' way is submission and suffering, not trying to get your own way. And that is, I can tell you, I've been in the workplace for a lot of years before I, well, when I was a pastor too, but it is not easy. It is not easy. It is supernatural, but we have to remember whom we represent. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He must become greater, and I must become less. Okay? That's the lesson there. Verse 22 through 25. Again, Jesus is our example. When you're thinking about responding to suffering the Jesus way, Jesus is our example. Now, watch these verses. You talk about unfair treatment. You talk about unfair treatment. Jesus had unfair treatment. Remember, he was the innocent of the innocent. He had no sin, no guile, nothing bad was in him. Watch how he was treated. Who committed no sin, verse 22, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, and I want you to remember that word reviled means abusive language. When I use that word, think abusive language. Abusive language did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Could Jesus have threatened? You bet. He had all the power of the universe. He did not do it. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might do what? Might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, oh, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Folks, there is a lot packed in these few verses. There's a lot packed in these few verses. Jesus just did not talk about how we should do life, but he modeled it. He modeled it. Jesus is the only one who ever lived out his time here on earth perfectly. You know, he's the only one that kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. No human can do that. He's God incarnate. He's God in flesh. He's the only one that did it perfectly. Verse 22, who committed no sin. By the way, this is a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. Nor deceit was found in his mouth. No human, I don't care how great the person is, can ever make that claim. No deceit, no decoy. That word means decoy, like you put duck decoys out, something fake that's out there. No deceit, with no deceit, no decoy, no craftiness, no guile. Jesus' response to unjust suffering, he did not revile in return. He did not use abusive language in return. Oh, it would have been so easy to do that. It would have been so easy to do that. Think about the unfairness that Jesus went through. Just think about this. First of all, he was betrayed by a very, very close friend. Make no mistake, within that little group of men, that's 12 men, Judas had the purse. Judas had a lot of authority within that group. He had a lot of favor in that group. No one suspected him, and he was betrayed by a close friend. Think about this. He was rejected by the people he came to save, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, John 1.11 says this, He came to his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected by the people of Israel, but it wasn't only the people of Israel. You know who else rejected him? His family, his brothers and his sisters thought he was looney tunes, thought he was crazy. You're the Messiah? Really, Jesus? You're the Messiah? Can you imagine within that family group? And Jesus said, yes, I am. He was denied by Peter. Now, Peter was the, he would be called the first among equals. He was one of the 12 apostles, but he was the speaking voice for the, for the apostles. He was the one that always stood up and always had something to say. And you know what Peter says? I will not deny you, Lord. And what did he do? Three times, three times, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. And by the way, I don't know the man. In Matthew 26, 74, he just he blurts it out. He was, Jesus, was, you talk about unfair? Jesus was brutalized by a Roman emperor, by the Roman Empire, from a governor, Pontius Pilate, he was crucified with thieves, like common thieves. He was naked on a cross, beaten beyond recognition. You think it was unfair? This isn't fair. This isn't fair. You don't hear Jesus saying that. 
You don't hear Jesus saying that at all. You don't see him reviling in return. What do you see Jesus doing? Let me show you. Jesus' attitude toward those who were hurting him, the unfairness is amazing. You know what he did? The first cry from the cross, the first cry from the cross in Luke 23, 34 says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. These are the ones, crown of thorns on his head, lashed him so he no longer looked like a human, punched him, and Jesus isn't rolling with the punches. He's taking every blow. He's puffed up. He no longer has his visage, it says in Isaiah 52, is marred more than any man, marred more than any man. And yet, through that swelling, probably lost teeth, the whole thing, he says, Father, forgive them the ones that have done this to me, for they know not what they do. That's an amazing thing. That's, an, that's the example that we have to follow, okay? Supernatural. can only be done by the Spirit of God. Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is the Jesus way, folks. As hard as that is in some situations, impossible, but it is the Jesus way. And it will take the Spirit of God to give you the strength to do it in in many, many situations. And not reviling in return, not using abusive language in return is the Jesus way. And again, it's the Holy Spirit's power. It's not done by wishing and hoping. It's not done, it's not done by living a cursory Christian life. It is done by a deep, intimate relationship with the Savior of the world, with the shepherd of our souls. That's how that is accomplished. It is not done any other way. You cannot have a minimalistic Christian experience and be able to do this. You must be walking in the Spirit. You must be filled with the Spirit like Jesus was in order to accomplish this. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer says about this from the Christ from the cross. During his ministry, Jesus often forgave those who needed his mercy. Son, your sins are forgiven you, he said to the paralytic in Mark 2.5. Only God can forgive sins. Yet Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't say, I forgive you. Lutzer's going to explain that. His remarks caused a storm of controversy, for his, bearers, for his hearers knew that only God could forgive sins. Even sin against others is ultimately sin against God. Jesus explained that he had the right to forgive sins because he had the credentials of the deity. In Colossians 2.9, we see he has all the fullness of, of deity lived in bodily form. All the fullness of God lived in bodily form. Now, on the cross, something was different. On the cross, it was different. He did not exercise his divine prerogative. He asked the Father to do what he had previously done. Sacrificed as the Lamb of God, he refused the role of deity. He was God to be sure, but chose to suspend his divine rights. He so completely identified with us that he temporarily withdrew himself from a position of authority. Yet his heart was burdened, burdened for those who had instigated and committed history's greatest crime. He prayed the unforgivable might be forgiven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Folks, this is the Jesus way. This is our example. This is following in his steps. Now, when you're dealing with unfairness and unjust suffering and that sort of thing, Christians are to respond the Jesus way. Sacrifice is the Jesus way. He calls each one of us to sacrifice our will, our way, for his way. Not getting our rights. Not having everything fair. It's never going to be fair here. It's fallen here. It's fallen here. Jesus bore our sins in his own body in verse 24. No super angel could die for you. Remember, every time somebody, an angel appears to them, what do they do? They fall on their face and the angel says, get up, don't worship me. I'm a servant like you are. No super angel could do it. No superhuman could do it because every human has imputed sin. Adam's sin has been credited to everybody in Romans 5.12. Only God's perfect son. The virgin birth. You talk about important there are people that are saying you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. Well, you need to realize what the virgin birth means. The virgin birth, sin is passed on through the Father. 
It is not passed on through the mother in Judaism. So the virgin birth is very essential. He didn't have a sinful father. He's God incarnate. The virgin birth is essential. He paid our sin debt with his death. That's Jesus. Jesus bore our sins in his own body. He paid our sin debt with his body. Sin is so awful in the sight of God. We have no idea how bad sin is in the sight of God. We take it casually. You talk about the frogs being boiled in the water. That's us. We're so casual with sin. But sin brings the death sentence. Any sin brings the death sentence on the one who sins. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. Sin requires a blood sacrifice, requires a death to deal with the sin. In the Old Testament, it was a lamb or a bull or something that would cover sin for a very short period of time because they would ultimately sin again. You couldn't get enough lambs to cover your sin. A billion lambs and you still couldn't cover your sins. You'd be exhausted. Exhausted. Sacri- I did it again. Sacrifice lamb. Did it again. Did it again. Did it, you know, over and over, sacrifice was required. But Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's sinless sacrifice for all. He substituted in our place. What does that mean? That means Jesus died when I should have died. My sin was placed on Jesus. All of my sin was placed on Jesus. And that as anybody, all of humanity, all of our sins are placed upon him. And whoever believes and receives the gift of salvation gets forgiveness. What a deal. It's the best deal going. Best deal going. Let's make a deal. Well, that's the best deal going. They were, whoever believes and receives the gifts has eternal life. They are viewed by God as sinless. Sacrifice is the believer's way. Sacrifice is the believer's way. The result for the believer is this, having died to sin. Every believer, everyone that says yes to the Lord Jesus, they have died to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, we have died to sin. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have died to my sins. And because of that, we are to, there's a change. I have died to sin, so what is expected? I am to live for righteousness. I am to live for righteousness. Out with the old, remember the old man is off, throw him away, cast him off. The old man, we are to put on the, the, the new man, put on the new man, and live in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. A life change. True believers, true followers are changed, having died to sins. No one, no one that followed Jesus was ever, ever, ever the same. They were changed. They were different. Now, verse 24b tells us why our sins are forgiven. And this is a controversial verse. By whose stripes you were healed. By whose stripes you were healed. I want to take a little time with this because I believe this has been misused and misunderstood oftentimes in Christendom. What does this really mean? Does this guarantee, does this verse guarantee, which is taken out of Isaiah 53.5, does this really guarantee our healing? Does the atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, guarantee my physical healing and my physical restoration. Can I claim this? Okay, There is much controversy about this. We need to be careful when evaluating this particular verse. Peter is quoting a portion of Isaiah 53.5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. I want you to do something for me. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. This is a prophecy that Isaiah gave about the coming Messiah. This is the prophecy coming about the one who would come to die for the sins of the world and break in to Satan's kingdom. Now watch what he says. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. So Jesus is dealing with the demonic realm. He has authority over everything that Satan has constructed on this earth. And he cast out the spirits with a word. A word. It wasn't some big performance. There wasn't some big big on-stage performance. It was with a word, and the demons had to leave. 
and he healed all who were sick. Why? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. This was before the atonement was made. This was prophetic of what Messiah would do. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The context of what Peter is quoting and what Isaiah was was looking forward to is spiritual, not physical healing. Jesus bore our sins. What did he bear? He bore our sins that we might live for righteousness. This then is is the healing provided by Jesus in this passage. Far too often, people have looked at this as some guarantee. And then when it hasn't happened the way that they think it should happen, their faith has been diminished. Their expectations have been weakened. Jesus bore our sins at the cross. In doing so, our sins are removed from us. This allows the spiritual healing of being born again. Being born again. Verse 25 gives more clarification. Watch this. This is speaking of our sins. For you were like sheep going astray. It has nothing to do with healing. It has to do with running from the Savior. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, granted, I would, I would submit to you this is a very controversial verse that I have just gone through, the Isaiah verse. And a lot of people don't look at it this way, but I've, I'm trying to give you the best view of this that I can give you from the, from, the, from the Scripture. Watch this. Further clarification of verse 25. We were sheep going astray. Sinners, okay? Lost, hell-bound, now returned to the shepherd, who would be Jesus, who is the overseer of your soul. This is a spiritual, not physical context dealing with sin. Now, returned speaks of repentance. The word is metanoia in the Greek. And it means a change or alteration of mind, a true change of heart, a true change of heart. It also means this. Repentance is not so much an emotion. Sometimes people say, did they cry? Did they cry when they... You could if you repented, but it's not necessary. Repentance is is not an emotion as much as an attitude towards God. It is the reorientation of life from self to him. It denotes a willingness to change and to be changed. It is not the complete cessation of sin, but a daily cessation of known rebellion to sin. It is a reversal of self-centered results of the fall. It denotes that the image and likeness of God, though damage has been restored, fellowship with God by fallen humans is possible again because of Jesus. Possible again. The picture is clear. Those who turn to Jesus, those who turn to the shepherd, are spiritually cleansed. For those who turned, Jesus is their overseer. He is their episkopos. Now, this word is the word for elder. An elder. What does the elder do? One who watches over your soul. Well, Jesus is the master elder who watches over our soul. William Barclay gives some clarification on this. He says this. It may be difficult for those of us who live in industrial civilization to grasp the greatness of this picture. But in the East, the picture would be very vivid, particularly in Judea, where there was a narrow central plateau which held danger on either side. It was on this narrow tableland that sheep grazed. Grass was sparse, there was no protecting walls, and the sheep wandered. The shepherd, therefore, had to ceaselessly and sleeplessly be on the watch, lest harm should come to his flock. The word shepherd tells us most vividly of the ceaseless vigilance and self-sacrifice of the love of God for us who are his flock. Psalm 100 verse 3 says this, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Jesus is the shepherd of our souls. He is called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. You know what this chief shepherd does? He rewards those who are elders, who are leaders. He is called the great shepherd in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. He is mankind's redeemer at that point. He is the great shepherd. He has redeemed us from our sins. And he is also the good shepherd in John 10, 11. 
who protects his sheep. And that is the sense that we're looking at this now. The shepherd is watching over you. His rod and his staff are comforting you and protecting you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, oh, they comfort me. You comfort me, Lord. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. The shepherd is watching over you, folks. This will help you through all of the reviling language that you might receive from other people, through all the unfair treatment that you might receive, through all the what in the world is going on now situations that you experience in your life. What in the world is going on? To suffer the Jesus way and know that the shepherd is watching over you, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even when Nero, even when Pilate, even when all the atrocities come towards the Christian as it has come all through the history of the world, the Lord is my shepherd. A final word, a great conclusion by Chuck Swindoll says this, are you feeling the splinters of some cross of unjust suffering? Has a friend betrayed you? Has an employer impaled you? Has a disaster been dropped on your life that almost is too great to bear? If so, don't fight back. Find your way back to the good shepherd. Oh, the one that protects you. Who endured the cross and laid down his life for you. My sincere prayer for you and for me and for all, for all of us and hope for all believers today is that this teaching will help you to respond to suffering the Jesus way. And why do we do that? That the world may know that we have been with the Master. We have been with the Master. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you for the life of Peter. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving this word to Peter. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture came from you. Peter was just the one that penned it. You wanted us to learn something here today. You wanted to teach us about the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and the good shepherd. You wanted to teach us how to respond to the culture that is around us that is indeed unfair. But you've given us the strength to make it through this thing called life on earth. You've given us the courage to make it through this thing called the life on earth. You've given us a way, and that is to follow the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be cursory in our relationship, casual in our relationship, but may we be totally immersed in you, Lord Jesus, that we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and actually be able to accomplish this, the impossible accomplished through your strength working through us. We can't do this on our own. We're pitifully inadequate. We must walk this walk successfully to follow Jesus through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time of teaching us today. In Jesus' name, amen.